Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly. And happening today, Hamas is getting ready to release 10 more hostages. That is the plan. After the temporary truce with Israel was extended and new this morning, Israeli officials tell CNN their families have been notified. A fourth round of Hamas captives were released yesterday, late afternoon. A mother and her three-year-old twin daughters were among those released. Their father, though, still being held hostage. To take a look at this new video, it shows 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi getting a big hug from his mom reuniting after spending 51 days in captivity. This morning, we are getting brand new details about the conditions hostages endure and the trauma they're grappling with now, like 13-year-old Hila Rotem Shoshani, who talks about what happened to her in the third person. She say she saw horrible things, but she say it with a straight face. Um, it's like she's describing a scene from a movie that she's, she watched somewhere. 72-year-old Adina Moshe was kept deep underground with little food to eat and was only allowed two hours of sunlight per day, according to her nephew. They were fed only by rice and some beans from can, which they tried to avoid it in order not to have stomachache. Just unbelievable conditions. And teenage siblings Noam and Alma Orr did not know that their mother had been murdered until they were released. The first news that they had to confront with was the fact that the mom uh, is no longer alive. Uh, And that was a terribly emotional and traumatic moment for them. Oren Lieberman starts us off live in Tel Aviv, Oren, just to hear each and every one of those accounts of what it was like for them during these weeks. It's unthinkable. What can you tell us about the extended truce and what we're expecting today? It's simply impossible to imagine what these hostages endured over the course of more than seven weeks now in in the cases of those who are newly released. But these are the stories we are beginning to learn about. There are 10 more hostages who will be released tonight. According to uh, Israeli officials, we have learned that as part of the extended truce that's supposed to go today and tomorrow into the following morning. Crucially, we've learned from the family of the youngest hostage, 10-month-old Kfir Bibas, his name and the names of his family not on that list. A strong lobbying effort. They're trying to push to see what they can do if they can make sure the family is on the list before the extended truce is over. We, of course, don't have news that will be extended any further, even though that remains at least somewhat of a possibility. Meanwhile, we're still seeing the joyful reunions in Israel for those families that are able to come together. Eitan Yahalomi, 12 years old. Let's see that video again. This is him being embraced by his mother, who waited all this time to see him. You can see that hug not letting go in any way. I suspect that will be a hug that lasts quite a while and is replayed many, many times over the course of the coming days. And then the video of the reunion of the Brodich family in the hospital here, the three kids and the mother newly released. All the joy there. You can even see the dog joining in the celebrations. 
in the hospital. We have seen these videos, we have seen these pictures. They are powerful each and every time we watch them. And we look forward to seeing more of these play out tonight, even as we wait for more than 100 more hostages to be released. And we'll see if the truce can hold. Right now, it's scheduled for another 48 hours. That will be 10 Israeli hostages released today, 10 more released uh, tomorrow in exchange for humanitarian aid going into Gaza and Palestinian women and children being released from prison. It is still a delicate truce, and we will follow it, Poppy and Phil, every step of the way as it plays out. Yeah, Orn, I, I kind of just want to watch the video of the kids and the dog on repeat for the remainder of the morning. You know, Orn, in talking with U.S. officials last night, something they said is behind the scenes, one of the big parts of this truce has been their conversations with Israeli officials about what happens next militarily when these truces come to an end. The Israeli defense minister said they're actually going to fight with a stronger force when combat continues. What does that mean? So there's the short-term question and the long-term. In the short-term, both Israel and Hamas have said, look, this war is still on. This may be a pause in the fighting, but when that pause ends and when as many hostages as possible are brought out of Gaza, this is still very much a war. Israel has thousands, if not tens of thousands of troops who remain in Gaza. They're in defensive positions. When this truce expires or, or runs its course or whatever terminology you want to use there, this is very much still a war, and Israel has said clearly that its goal is to destroy Hamas, and you can expect that Hamas will fight back and try to uh, fight back against the Israeli forces that are still there. In terms of the long-term question, what happens when this war is over, Phil, that is very much a serious and open question. Yeah, and a critical day ahead in the near term, Orrin Lieberman, thank you. Also, this just in, CIA Director William Burns returns to Qatar this morning as the White House works to free more hostages with help from Israel and Egypt. Burns' visit comes as the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby has warned that Hamas could use the pause to regroup. Any pause in the fighting uh, could benefit uh, uh, your enemy in terms of time to refit, to rest your fighters, to rearm them, uh, re-equip them. But I, again, I want to stress, and this was always part of the calculus. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis joins us from Washington. Katie Bo, this is your reporting. What are you learning about this visit? Uh, Phil, uh, officials tell uh, my colleague Alex Markhart uh, that Burns, TIA Director Bill Burns, will be joined in Doha by the head of Israel's Mossad, David Barnea, as well as the director, Egypt's director of general intelligence, Abbas Kamal. This comes, of course, as the U.S. has helped broker this two-day pause in the fighting in Gaza in exchange for the expected release of 10 additional hostages for each day of the pause. And as incredibly delicate conversations are expected to continue in the coming days about the potential of, of possibly extending this pause even further. Uh, the interest, of course, for the Biden administration is not just the, the sort of general release of as many hostages as they can help engineer, but also, I think, in particular, these two American women who were expected to be part of the original tranche of 50 uh, released over the past four days that ultimately were—that ultimately did not, uh, did not leave Gaza. These obviously been incredibly, incredibly sensitive negotiations. Burns has been— an integral player, really, from the beginning. He's been in regular contact with Israel's Barnea, who's been kind of Israel's point person on hostage negotiations. He's been in and out of Doha over the past month. Um, and I think interesting, really, here, um, Phil and Poppy, to sort of see how Biden has sort of chosen to deploy his CIA director in this context specifically. This is something that presidents will often do when they want the United States to be able to talk to, even indirectly talk to, an entity that is not State Department recognized as a nation state, and they don't want to send the Secretary of State 
state. Um, but Biden, I think, has has really leaned very heavily on Burns in his capacity as kind of a shadow diplomat, first in Ukraine and now here in Israel. And this is a space in which Burns has uh, an extended amount of experience. He was, uh, of course, a State Department diplomat in the region. He also was the lead negotiator under Obama for secret talks with Iran that ultimately became the Iran nuclear deal. So this is a space in which the CIA director has a lot of experience and the president is leaning on him very heavily for a very, very sensitive mission. That's a really interesting point. Katie Bolillis, thank you for the reporting. And we are getting new information about what life was like for those hostages during their weeks in Hamas captivity, what they ate, where they slept, and how one man actually escaped for four days before he was recaptured. Plus, how the freed hostages are coping with the physical and emotional trauma they've endured. One woman still fighting for her life. We're going to speak to a doctor who is treating her. That's next. That touching reunion just in overnight. Three siblings reuniting with their dog, Rodney. Looks like a Rhodesian Ridgeback at Schneider Children's Hospital in Israel. The children and their mother were released by Hamas Sunday night. In Mayanzin lived every parent's worst nightmare when her two daughters, Daphna, 14, and Ella, 8, were taken hostage. They were finally released and shared this moment. You see it there, a hug they certainly never wanted to end. And on Monday, 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi was released and reunited with his mother. Another touching hug. These touching reunions come as we're learning more about the conditions, though, that the hostages were held in during their captivity in Gaza. It's the chilling testimony shining the light on the conditions in which Israeli hostages were held for seven weeks. Now freed, those hostages say they mostly survived on rice and bread and reportedly slept on chairs pushed together, all as bombs rained down overhead. Karen Munder, her mother and nine-year-old son all lost considerable weight, according to their cousin. They ate a lot of uh, rice. Uh, sometimes they, they didn't have rice, so they ate only bread. She told me that if you want to go to the toilet, you have to knock on the door, and only after one and a half hour, two hours, they open the door and you can go to the bathroom. Two teenagers, Noam and Alma Orr, only learned of their mother's death after they were released. Their uncle provided CNN with some details of their time in captivity. They were held in a, in a house, in a room, with another lady, uh, also from the kibbutz. I know also that they were uh, having a diary, the three of them together, uh, and the terrorists did not allow them to take it. 72-year-old Adina Moshe was held underground and was only allowed two hours of sunlight per day. They didn't have any uh, decent facilities like shower. They didn't shower for seven weeks. So it's horrible condition. Margalit Moses was released by Hamas, but her ex-husband remains in Gaza. Her niece tells CNN her aunt is a hero. She actually took the role of taking care of others, and she helped many of them. Even in the tiny little things like getting up from the mattress, they're all very old. They were all the old, all the oldies together. So it was. It was challenging. And knowing she was there for all the others, I think, um, made her even stronger. A Russian-Israeli hostage whose release was negotiated as part of a separate deal was the first adult male released from Gaza. 
His aunt tells an Israeli radio station that the 25-year-old escaped his captors after an Israeli airstrike collapsed the building where he was being held. After four days, he was caught and returned to Hamas captivity. And 13-year-old Hila Rotem Shoshani was released over the weekend, but her mother still remains in Gaza. Israel Defense Forces say their separation is in direct violation of the hostage agreement. Hila's uncle tells CNN about the moment she was separated from her mother. They came and they took us, and um, they didn't give us a lot of time to prepare, but I had time to give her a hug, and Raya, my sister, her mother, was crying when the girls, the children left. She had to just say goodbye to her mother. And joining us now to provide more insight on the mental and the physical recovery they are facing ahead. We are happy to be joined again this morning by Dr. Hagai Lavini as the head of the medical team for the Hostages and Missing Families Forum. And he's been monitoring especially the condition of 84-year-old Elma Abraham. She was rushed to an Israeli hospital in critical condition after she was released this weekend. Doctor, thank you for joining us. And can we just begin there on how, because you've had contact with her and been overseeing her care, how is her recovery coming? Is she still critical? Hello, Poppy and Phil. Yes, Elma Abraham is uh, still in a critical condition, fighting for her life. Uh, she's uh, ventilated, and um, you know we are just focusing now on saving her life. The the medical team at the Soroka Medical Center, but I must uh, testify to the world. Uh, her condition, not only medically, that she didn't uh, receive the, the medication she needed, and some of them are rather simple medications that could have been given, and obviously she deteriorated with time. But also, you can see on her body that she was dragged from a place to place, and mm. uh, that she was handcuffed, that, um, you know, like she has chemical wounds from, from not treating her, her basic needs, if you understand what I mean. So, you know, that's loss of basic dignity. That's immense suffering. It's not clear why they didn't release her before based on humanitarian. And we are very worried that some of the other hostages, hopefully also released today, but some of the, the other hostages are dying or are in such a condition and, and they must be released immediately or for the very least to allow the, the Red Cross to, to visit them. It's, it's really worrisome as as we see the light, and we are so glad with the release and the recovery of uh, of some of the hostages, I must say that also for those who seem well, uh, there are shades. We hear from them. Some were uh, underwent, you know, it's not necessarily intentional torture, which also is possible, but they were uh, cuffed for long periods. They were in uh, dark places. They were in poor ventilation. They got uh, poor diet, as you just uh, showed and they have uh, mental consequences and they will uh, need strong uh, and lasting support from their families and from the multidisciplinary teams. Yeah, Professor, to that point, I want to play some sound. We've seen these emotional reunions. I think your heart fills with joy when you watch them. It doesn't appear to be any physical harm, at least on the surface. But to your point, what actually is happening inside for particularly these kids Listen to what one child has been referring to herself as in the wake of her release. She's a little bit distant now. She's a little bit cold. 
she talks about things that happen like it's in third person, like it happened to someone else. Uh, she say she saw horrible things, but she say it with a straight face. Um, it's like she's describing a scene from a movie that she's, she watched somewhere. That's the uncle of Hila Rotem Shoshani. What does that tell you, uh, Professor Levine, when you hear that? Well, you know, when, when the situation is, is completely abnormal, it's something that you just simply cannot accept. You cannot accept for some of the children that things their parents and family members uh, killed, murdered, brutally in front of their eyes. They didn't have the, the, the necessary help to digest this kind of very, very difficult uh, scenes that they experienced. So they distant themselves away from that. And, you know, seven weeks have passed and they cannot close it now because what we do usually when you have a trauma, say, okay, the trauma is over. It, it was horrible, but now you are in a safe place and we can start the recovery. But, you know, for her, her mother is still there. It's not only against basic the, the agreement, but it's against basic morality. Yeah. Why would you, when they are released, separate kids from their living mothers. And also, I must remind you that for many of the families, the fathers are still there. It's, yeah. it's horrible, you know. Also, The fathers must be released. When we, we normalized the Hamas way that, yes, we now release uh, children and, and, and women. But, you know, all of them deserve to be free. All of them deserve to get proper medical and mental care. For Elma Avram, not only she didn't return home yet, She's hospitalized, but also her home was violated. She doesn't have home to return to when she's hopefully released from the hospital after she will able because now she's life certain conditions. So it just shows you how deep is the the you know the tragedy and for many of the families, not only that they care about the hostages that are still there, they just their own family is still there, so yeah. it's very difficult to recover. I must say a bit of the medicine that the support and solidarity among the hostages, among the families of the hostages, and among all the people around the world that support the families and the hostages is very strengthening the families and the hostages. Yeah. And we thank uh, all, all of you that sent uh, support. Dr. Hagai Levine, um, thank you so much. You're so right about being traumatized on so many different levels. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for good news. And happening now, a rescue mission to save 41 workers who've been trapped inside a tunnel in northern India for more than two weeks. Some should be coming out at any moment. We're going to take you there live. Also new information this morning on the tragic shooting of those three Palestinian students. The mother of one of them will join us live as her son recovers. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. 
When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Well, breaking news, it appears a dangerous weeks-long saga is reaching a dramatic conclusion. You are looking at live pictures right now of rescue workers closing in on 41 trapped workers inside of a collapsed tunnel. They have been trapped for two weeks in India, and they could emerge at any moment. Let's go straight to our Vedika Sud. She joins us live in New Delhi. Two weeks, and they've been feeding in water and oxygen and food to keep them alive. And... Are they all going to get out alive today? Well, we're hoping they do, Poppy. What we've just been told through a press conference, uh, a representative of the National Disaster Management Authority just briefed the media and said they're about two meters away from these 41 men. They've been inside that tunnel for more than 17 days now. So that's more than just two weeks. And they've been waiting to hear from these rescue teams to pull them out. They've heard from them on multiple occasions. There have been disappointments in the last 17 days, but this, we believe, is the final phase. The rescues have gone inside this tunnel. It's a 60-meter uh, distance between the exit, the only exit, and them. And we're being told that it could take a couple of more hours. We shouldn't expect them to be out anytime soon because the last two meters is extremely crucial. They're dealing with mangled metal. They're dealing with debris. They're dealing with rocks. And this is an ecologically fragile area. The family members are waiting outside. More than uh, two a dozen ambulances are on standby to get these people out. Can you just imagine what their mental health state would be right now, or even physically, how they would be placed at this moment? So we're waiting to hear from them, but this could take more time than just a couple of hours, given that it's already five o'clock in the evening as we speak. Back to you. Hoping for the best news possible. Vedika Sud, thank you very much. Live from New Delhi for us. And we have breaking news in just the last hour. The U.S. military is set to deliver three plane loads of aid for Gaza this morning. Aid workers are going to describe a situation that is growing more desperate by the hour. Also, really interesting new development on Capitol Hill. Israel making a push to Senate Democrats as aid is hanging in the balance for Israel. Nine Americans still held in Gaza this morning, and the White House had expected, you'll remember, that two women on that list would be released as part of the original four-day truce agreement. That did not happen, and the White House says it does not believe that they were intentionally held back, but they didn't elaborate on that. Also, the father of one of those women, Liat Benin, still has hope now that the pause has been extended for two days. Listen. Obviously, I'm disappointed. Um, but uh, uh, we remain optimistic uh, and hopeful that uh, her release will come 
in the in the next day, next two days. All this comes as the administration is under pressure to help get all the hostages back home and back a longer pause in the fighting. Activists, including actress Cynthia Nixon, rallied outside the White House Monday, announcing the start of a hunger strike. Joining us now, CNN Global Affairs analyst Kim Dozier and CNN political commentator and Spectrum News political anchor Errol Lewis. Kim, I want to start with you on this, because in talking to administration officials, they put forward the idea that, look, without the president, without his approach up to this point over the course of the last seven weeks, there would be no four to five to six day pause. There would be no hostages coming home. And yet the political pressure domestically is immense. Do you kind of believe their position here? Well, there is a certain amount of dissonance in that because um, it's pretty amazing that this particular Israeli government uh, agreed to a pause at all. Um, And I think that only came thanks to President Biden going there in person shortly after the October 7th attacks Mm. and giving Israel a bear hug, as um, the country has talked about since then. He built up a lot of political capital with Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, and that, together with the U.S. relationship with interlocutors like Qatar, has allowed the communication to stay open with Hamas for this pause. Then again, we always have to remember Hamas took the hostages um, to create just a situation like this where Hamas is essentially in the driver's seat. Errol, you have said, look, Israel has no choice but to continue this. I think the question is how they continue it. That's the concern, especially among a number of Democrats in Congress. That's why the IDF went to speak with Senate Democrats. But do you believe that the White House will change its public tone and posture on how Israel is conducting this? I think the the public tone is going to remain what it's been, which is cautious support, full-throated support, but also caution and a word of caution to try and sort of hold back what they know is coming um, and make no mistake about it. What is coming is a resumed attack on the The leadership. stronger one, according to the Israeli defense. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we we keep forgetting. I've been reading a lot of the Israeli press. You look at Times of Israel, Jerusalem Post, Haaretz. Um, This has been so traumatic for that society. The worst one-day attack, um, you know, the, the violence that happened, the worst in 75 years. This is their 9-11. This is their Pearl Harbor. They keep saying that. I don't know if we're fully absorbing it here. It's very tempting here, thousands of miles away, to sort of, you know, oh, it's a Christmas miracle, a Hanukkah miracle. You know, all the families are coming back and look at the cute dog and so forth and so on. It's not like that at all. Um, unless they destroy the, the infrastructure of Hamas, and kill the leadership, kill, literally kill the, le- the leadership and prevent the possibility of such uh, a repeat of such an attack, th- they, they've done nothing. And Israeli society in every poll that I've looked at, I mean, we're talking about 65, 75, 80 percent are unified on that. There's a lot of dissension within Israel on a lot of different issues. But on this, they are 100 percent solid and nothing from the White House or anywhere else, I think, is going to change that. Kim, to that point, and I think this feeds into a really important thing that's happening behind the scenes right now. U.S. officials I've heard from say in the midst of this pause, they are having intensive discussions about what's next in the military operation, which will take place in the south, where more than a million refugees have fled over the course of the last seven weeks. What impact do you think the U.S. can have on those operations and that planning? Yes, uh, right now, uh, U.S. officials have been messaging that 
they need to see a different kind of operation um, in the South than they saw in the North. And according to U.S. officials who briefed reporters last night, um, they think the message is getting through, that the next stage we'll see is uh, more small operations, more targeted and focused um, uh, raids through the South, as opposed to these big military sweeps that smash through infrastructure and as many um, air attacks as we've seen in the past. So it's because the South is even more densely packed, especially since there are 1.7 million displaced Palestinians packed into the South. Um, Israel had proposed to have them move from one place to the next as it did its operations. And the White House has said, no, that's simply not acceptable. You can't keep moving these people around and, and expect them to get to safety in time. What about, just back to this interesting punchable reporting that Members of the IDF, Errol, went to uh, Senate Democrats and met with met with them yesterday uh, because there are big concerns about should there be conditions on aid to Israel on this package that the president has proposed. Most Democratic senators, we hear some now coming out and saying there should be. It's interesting that Ben Cardin, who obviously is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has said, I don't think there needs to be conditionality. And he said that now twice. How do you explain yeah. this divide? Yeah, well, I mean, look, there there are those who are feeling heat from their constituents. And because so much of this is playing out in the media, they're, they're worried that this is going to look awful and that they're going to be seen as having given a, a blank check to Israel. And so they want to start bringing about conditions. IDF is there to tell them, it's like, okay, you want to get involved? Let's talk about it. Let me show you what it looks like on the ground. If you want to start putting in conditions, you want to start making strategy, you want to make tactical considerations mm -hmm. about this very difficult situation, let me show you what we're up against. And I think that will probably change the conversation. You do? You think it'll make a difference? It, it would have to if they're paying attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Errol. Kim Dozier, thank you very, very much. Errol, stick around. We'll see you again in a couple of minutes. The call to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's back on the campaign trail. How the Biden administration is responding to Donald Trump's call to ditch it again. And in just a few minutes, the first interview with Thomas Hand, who thought Hamas had killed his daughter, Emily. He waited 50 days for the hug you're looking at right now. You'll find out how he felt to hold Emily again. She told me. She was surprised to see me at the handover. She said, in whisper, she said, I thought, I thought you were captive. I thought you were one of the kidnapped. New this morning, the U.S. military says it's providing more humanitarian relief for Gaza. CN senior administration officials telling CNN the first of three plane loads of aid will arrive today in Egypt. The United Nations will then distribute that aid in Gaza. Now, it is expected to include medical supplies, food, and much-needed weather gear for civilians. We're told this delivery is not linked to the current pause in fighting and will continue even when that fighting picks back up. Now, the initial four-day truce and two-day extension have allowed for some relief to flow into Gaza, but aid groups warned it's still not nearly enough for the more than a million displaced people. Joining us now is Juliette Tuma, the Director of Communications for the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. She was in Gaza last week. Juliet, thank you for your time. I want to start uh, with the aid that the U.S. officials are talking about, not just the three plane loads, but they've been talking about since the truce began, I think more than 800 trucks of aid have entered Gaza. There's been a surge of sorts. What kind of effect does that have given the scale of the need? 
Yeah, thanks for having me. We have certainly seen an increase in the number of aid trucks that have been coming into the Gaza Strip, and that is very welcome. Uh, we've also had a breakthrough at UNRWA, where we were finally able to deliver aid trucks, humanitarian aid trucks, to the shelters in the northern uh, part of the Gaza Strip. So that is also very good. And I think most importantly for people in Gaza is uh, the respite and the uh, few days of calm that they've had after 50 days of brutal, brutal war. Juliet, you were in Gaza last week. Uh, it's almost, it, you look at the pictures and it, it's Im almost impossible to understand, just looking at pictures, what that must be like. In your experience in the work that you do, is there anything comparable to the scale of this humanitarian crisis? This is unprecedented. I have been uh, serving with the United Nations for 20 years now, and uh, I have covered um, several conflict zones. This is unprecedented in terms of the volume of the displacement. This is the largest displacement of the Palestinians since 1948. Um, the number of colleagues that were killed, we have lost 108 UNRWA colleagues during this war. The one million people, one million people taking uh, shelter in, in UNRWA facilities, um, the siege that has been very tight and the level of destruction is just mind-boggling. To that point, you know, we talk about a million, 1.7 million people have moved south. They, they, they were asked to move south. They have moved south. But for your capabilities, that many people moving into your camps, your facilities, what does that mean? What does that look like? So, just to be accurate, we are hosting right now more than one million people in our facilities. These are not camps. Um, they used to be mainly schools for children, uh, but since the war began, we had to unfortunately close these schools down and turn them into shelters. I visited one of those shelters in the south of the Gaza Strip, very overcrowded. People continue to come into these shelters. Um, they said to us, we don't need food or water just protect us. So people come to UN shelters because they are in search of safety and protection. However, note that since the war began, even those UNRWA facilities have not been spared. Nearly 80 uh, incidents have been recorded where UNRWA facilities, including those that were sheltering um, Palestinian families, were themselves impacted. Uh, it's an important clarification. I appreciate you making it. And you also noted the, the 108 uh, colleagues of yours that have lost their lives. Uh, before I let you go, the immediate needs, I, I know they are immense. What should people know about what you need on the ground now? We're talking about people who have lost everything overnight. And so right now they need everything. And the weather is, is getting much, much worse. It's, it was very cold when I was in Gaza last week. Um, the rain is here. Um, so winter clothes, blankets, um, and of course, food and water and hygiene items so that people um, can wash their hands, can stay clean. And fuel, fuel is really absolutely fundamental. Regular shipments of fuel to keep the humanitarian operation running in the Gaza Strip. Julia Tumo, we appreciate your work. We also appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Well, first on CNN, Clarissa Ward's interview with the father of 
Look at her there, Emily Han, the story that we've been telling you about for 50 plus days. She was released by Hamas. They were united. And you'll hear from her father next. And coming up live on CNN this morning, the mother of one of the Palestinian students shot in Vermont, Hisham Aratani, joins us live. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Chaos follows him. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. We had too much division in this country and too many threats around the world to be sitting in chaos once again. That is Nikki Haley criticizing Donald Trump during a campaign event in Bluffton, South Carolina yesterday. In recent polls, Haley has climbed even with Ron DeSantis in Iowa. Of course, he's betting on Iowa. She's pulled ahead in New Hampshire and South Carolina. But so far, nobody has been able to really put a dent in Trump's sizable lead. And that's notable because in just seven weeks, the polls will start to matter less once Republican caucus goers actually had their say in Iowa, followed, of course, by the New Hampshire primaries just a week after that. Joining us now, former Obama administration official Sarah Feinberg, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, and Errol Lewis is back with us. Sarah, uh, we point to that sound. Now let's point to the spend. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley and her outside groups have spent a significant amount of money they have spent no money attacking Donald Trump. There's an analysis of their ads and their campaign that they've been spending. I understand that you're trying to knock Ron DeSantis out. If you're not going after Donald Trump, what's the play here? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, ultimately, look, momentum is such a great thing for a campaign, right? I'm sure that she and everyone around her is feeling so good. Every morning they're waking up, there's more and more momentum. That starts to slide at some point. It becomes a two-person race. And she's going to have to contend with the fact that she's telling folks one thing in New Hampshire. She's telling folks something else in Iowa. That's not going to match up pretty Politicians soon. She's going to never do that. And, and then, <laughs> so true, so true. This is the first time that's happened. First time. So we'll see what happens, right? Exactly. But at some point, it's going to become a two-person race. Is it going to be Nikki Haley and Trump, or is it going to be somebody else in Trump? She had so many people there, guys, yesterday. It was like 2,500 people. This town hall sort of turned into a rally, if you will. But to, to your point about the strategy, here's what, let's just listen to what Carl Rove said he sees happening. Here it is. He was on Fox. The first one is Trump wins Iowa and he's got more than 50 percent of the vote. If that's the case against this field, it's going to be very problematic from then on. But I don't think that's likely. More likely is Trump comes in first and but under 50 percent and, and with a strong second. If there's somebody who comes out of the pack and emerges as a strong, a strong second, as Gary Hart did in 1984 on the Democratic side, then we got a horse race. Uh, I think that's the most likely outcome. Why are you shaking your head, Errol Lewis? A President Hart would agree with that analysis. This is, it's, it's, you know, look, it's not horseshoes, right? It's, it's um, it, perceptions can matter. Uh, but it, it seems to me that uh, whether Trump has 51%, 52%, 38%, if he's 20 to 30 points ahead of his next closest rival, 
in heavily evangelical Iowa, he's done everything he needs to do. And he's, he'll have done it without a single debate. And then he'll move on. Um, he is on track to become the nominee, period. Uh, the question is what everyone else does and why John doesn't understand that. Well, no, it's, <laughs> I get it on this real quick because I actually want to do something different and take the other side. Oh, great. Uh, despite our long-running bet. I, I like uh, long -running And the steak dinner that I'm going to win from you, which is the idea here is hold him under 50, become the clear number two, get a bounce in New Hampshire, and then everybody on that 60% of the non-Trump Republicans funnels in to Nikki Haley and creates a totally different race. Correct. And Nikki Haley's home state. Right. L lest we forget. So, look, I mean, the, the whole point, you know, I think the frustration with horse race politics around this stuff and the polling and over indexing that is that people haven't actually voted yet. Look, the fact that Kim Reynolds and Bob Vanderplatz, two big players, governor and, and an evangelical leader in Ohio, back Ron DeSantis is, is significant because what it really is, is looking for an alternative to Donald Trump. Whether DeSantis is the right vehicle for that, we'll see. He's got actually the most pressure. He's got to outperform in Iowa or he is toast. Um, Haley's been getting major momentum. And that's when all of a sudden you start to see the Republican field start to coalesce. And you look at, you know, Washington Post and other polls have seen, it's basically a third, a third, a third. Third Republicans say they'll vote for Donald Trump no matter what. Third are persuadable, third are opposed. Mm -hmm. So, but first of all, let people vote. Let's see how this actually plays out in reality, not in theory. Let's not over-rely on the horse race, because also let's not forget the stakes are enormously high, not just for the Republican Party, <clears throat> but for the entire republic. Obamacare. Uh, Trump doesn't like it, breaking news. Um, and he is trying to, he said again, uh, I'm going to seriously look at alternatives. What's interesting to me, Sarah, the Biden administration jumped on this mm -hmm. and is knowing the president's mm -hmm. popularity isn't high. They're going after policies that are pretty popular among Americans who depend on Obamacare at this point in time. Trump tried how many times to overturn this mm -hmm. in the court? Never worked. And by the way, never put out a viable alternative here. Right. Successful strategy for the Biden team to do this? You know, look, I think they, they were probably right to jump on it right away when Trump started talking up, you know, I'm going to get rid of Obamacare. But, you know, as Biden always says, compare me to reality. Don't co compare me to a fantasy. And I think, you know, the closer we get to Election Day, people are going to be thinking about Obamacare versus nothing. Well, Obamacare is a clear winner there, right? But Obamacare versus, hmm, could there be an alternative? I think <sighs> the Biden folks need to be going out there talking about not... Obamacare that was passed years ago is perfect, but like, what can we add to it? Oh, what else can we offer people? Oh. Medical billing transparency, you know, better options on doctors that are in network and out of network. You know, some, some, some way to address the fact that like, I feel like I have good healthcare and every month I'm fighting with my insurance company. Right. Every month. It's infuriating. O Obamacare takes its place now alongside Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, as things that the Democrats will always use to say, the Republicans want to take this away from you. You cannot trust them. Don't go any. Don't go anywhere near them. Yeah, and and let's not also forget the whole repeal and replace thing was a complete fraud because there was no replace. And so this becomes a real fundamental problem. Not just because you're the procedure taking something away, but that. You go look back at all the fights around Obamacare and the death panel talk nonsense from a decade ago, and we see what was it about at the end of the day? Barack Obama and Democrats trying to expand people's access to health care. Was that demonization and division worth it? No. I, I thought we were going to have a lengthy debate about risk pools. Oh, God, man. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not going to happen. We can do that later. Can I just close by saying I texted a senior Republican aide about whether or not there was an alternative or something Republicans wanted to pursue, and the response I got was, LOL, what? So I, I, don't, think so it's, I don't think it's real. I don't think it's real. Sarah Feinberg, John Avalon, Errol Lewis, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Risk pools next hour. I'm just kidding. CNN This Morning <laughs> continues right now.
Eleven women and children are back in Israel after being held hostage in Gaza. You cannot explain the emotions. It's pure joy that comes out of you after so many days. The four-day pause extended by another two days. We would like to see the release go on. We're very happy for the other families, but it's really hard. There's relief that they've been set free, but they've still got to deal with that trauma. Psychological, medical, nutritional, they have many deficiencies. The moment this pause is over, the war itself is back on. It all of its intensity. Gaza is a total humanitarian disaster. There's going to be a huge amount of aid coming into Gaza, and that is going to save lives. Two American women that the White House was anticipating would be released or not. They do not believe that Hamas was intentionally holding back the Americans. We want to see them back with their families where they belong. And we do have breaking news. This hour, our own Clarissa Ward has just spoken to the father of Emily Han, the nine-year-old former hostage released by Hamas. This is his first interview since his little girl was let go, leading to that hug you're watching now after nearly 50 days in captivity. He was originally told, you'll remember, Emily was killed during the October 7th terror attacks. Clarissa is standing by to bring that to us. And this comes as we are watching and we are waiting for Hamas to release 10 more hostages today after the temporary truce with Israel was extended for two more days. A fourth round of Hamas captives was released late yesterday, and that includes a mother and her three-year-old twin daughters. Their father, though, still being held hostage. And take a look at this new video. That's 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi getting a big emotional hug from his mom as they finally reunited last night. There are a lot of big developments this morning, but we want to go straight to CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, you just spoke to Thomas Hand, the father of Emily Hand. You've been following this story from day one. What did he say? Well, as you can imagine, Phil, he was extremely emotional at times. This has been a horrendous roller coaster. Originally, he had been told his daughter was dead. Then he was told she might be alive. And then, of course, the moment he hadn't dared to even dream of, that moment when she was finally released after more than seven weeks in captivity, he told us that she was not held in the tunnels, as many people, uh, many of the hostages were, that she was constantly moved from house to house uh, in her captivity and that she referred to Gaza as, quote, the box. Uh, talking about her captivity there, said that her physical health was relatively okay, but the psychological wounds, of course, are much deeper. I want to play you this clip, though, Phil, where he talks about that first moment of being reunited with his little girl after an agonizing wait. She said, yeah, she'll be here in a couple of minutes. I'm like, oh, don't believe it. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the door opened up and she just ran. It was, um, it was beautiful, just like in, uh, just like I imagined it, you know, running together. Um, I squeezed, I probably squeezed too hard. Um, it's only when she stepped back a little that I could see her, her, her face was chiseled like mine, whereas before she left it was, you know, chubby, curly, young kid face. Yeah, she's lost a lot of um, body weight. Um, <laughs> and the colour, she, I've never seen her so white. The, the other 
and the most shocking, disturbing part of meeting her was um, she was just whispering. Mm. Couldn't hear her. I had to put my ear on her lips, like this close, and say, what did you say? And Um, she said, I thought you were kidnapped. She thought I was in captivity. They thought they'd kidnapped me. She didn't know what the hell happened apart from that morning. So she's presumed everyone's kidnapped or killed or slaughtered. or She had no idea. Emily also had to find out the very hard news that the woman she regarded as her second mother, Tom's uh, first wife, had been killed in the October 7th attacks. He said that she is getting stronger, she is eating well, she is smiling more, and psychiatrists at the hospital have been very optimistic about her progress. But still, it is a long road ahead. He is so keenly aware of that. He described to us how last night, uh, without indicating why, she just hid underneath the covers and started crying for an hour and didn't want to be comforted and, and didn't want to talk about what what it was that was upsetting her so much. And he said that the staff at the hospital had said it's very important not to try to coax things out uh, of Emily at this stage after what she's been through, but to allow her in her own time to naturally process and begin to share more details of what she has gone through. Clarissa, it's extraordinary to hear those details from the whispering in his ear. I thought you were kidnapped as well. But there was something he told you. Um, they didn't hold her in tunnels. They moved her from house to house. Right. The, the sort of working assumption, I think, had been that most of the hostages had been held underground in this network of tunnels that Hamas has built. But Emily says that she was held, along with some others, including uh, 13-year-old Heller Rote, who uh, she was basically her best friend, the girl she had gone for a sleepover with. That's how she came to be separated from Thomas in the first place. And Hilla's mother, Raya, who was expected to be released with them. He said that Raya had become like a second mother to Emily during captivity. And then at the last minute, for reasons that we still don't fully understand, Hamas separated Raya from Hilla and Emily. But during the vast majority of their captivity, he says that Emily told them they were move from house to house, that there was bombardment, obviously. He, she also said that they did not undergo any kind of physical abuse of any kind, but that she had learned the word now in Arabic for be quiet. Mm -hmm. And you heard him talking about their, the whispering as well, that they understood that they were not allowed uh, to speak uh, very loudly at all. The only activities that they were allowed to do were quiet activities like drawing and playing cards to pass the time. And one thing that also just stuck with me so much, when he asked her, do you know how long you were held for? She, understandably, she's a little girl. The passage of time is can be hard to mark, let alone when you don't have a, a clock or a watch or a calendar. She said she thought it was a year that she had been held in captivity. Of course, it was actually 50 days, Poppy. Clarissa, one, the, the three of them being together, particularly since Raya has not been released yet, uh, is a fascinating detail, but also her father, when we spoke to him here, you spoke to him, continuously referenced her birthday. 
which she uh, was in captivity for released shortly thereafter. Did she know? Uh, did you ask? Did she know that she'd had a birthday? That she missed her birthday? It's not clear that she knew that it was her birthday. I think the sort of any sense of time went out the window. He did say that they had celebrated a little birthday uh, just now where they're currently staying for Emily and also for uh, her friend Hilla. He said it was very important that the two of them be together. They became really, truly in captivity like sisters. He described how Emily would stroke Hilla's ear um, in order to comfort herself, to fall asleep at night. Hilla's a little bit older. She's 13 years old. And one other detail that really stayed with me, he brought the dog, as I've reported before, Johnsy, to greet her at the border crossing. But then when they got into the van and began driving back into Israel, um, he said that the first thing she wanted to do was listen to some music. She wanted to put a Beyonce song on his phone. And that was the sort of first comfort for her, the first distraction wow. uh, from the horror of what she had endured. And, and you know, Cl Cl Clarissa, when you, when speaking so many times you have with Thomas Hand, he talked about wanting to take her to a Beyonce concert, right? To give her the world, to take her to Disney World. She's looking for those comforting things that every girl that age loves. Can you speak more to Hilla as well? Uh, and obviously she provided such comfort for Emily. I think the two of them have become inseparable. Tom's focus absolutely right now is on doing everything he can to try to campaign for the release of Raya. And he talked yeah. about seeing Hilla's brother every day and the pain uh, of knowing that he is so lucky that Emily's out. And of course, they're lucky that Hilla is out, but the pain of knowing that Raya is not. And he feels this enormous debt of gratitude uh, to Raya because she was a mother to Emily during that time in captivity. She treated her the same way she treated her own daughter. She wow. hugged her and provided comfort to her and stroked her hair. And, and that debt of gratitude that he feels, the only way that it can be repaid is in person and by having her out. And he really had such a strong message on that front not even just for Raya, but for all the hostages that, that you know, the world can't forget and shouldn't forget and must continue uh, to push as hard as humanly possible for their release, Poppy. Clarissa, how is he? He is, I mean, this is something I asked him about because he talks so much about how Emily is doing and what Emily is going through. And, when you ask about his own well-being, I think there's, a, there's an element of guilt there that he's not being able to overcome fully, which is, of course, irrational, but I think any of us as parents can relate to it, the idea that you were separated from your child, that you weren't able to rescue them. He says that when he found out that she might be alive, that he would fantasize in his mind about trying to sneak into Gaza to rescue her, and he knew it was absurd. And it was impossible. But he was so consumed with this desire, this need to do everything in his power to get her back. And what kept him going during that time was the adrenaline, being on the road, traveling to New York, traveling to London, raising awareness, giving interviews. And now that that has sort of passed and that Emily has been freed, he really suddenly felt every ounce of energy just drain from his entire body. He is 
completely exhausted. And yet the only thing that really gives him the strength to keep putting one foot in front of the other is firstly to continue to campaign for the release of the other hostages, but secondly, to do everything within his power to help Emily on what is going to be a very challenging, challenging journey. And he said that starts out with giving her a beautiful Hanukkah. He said it's going to be a big Christmas. He said we've got to, you know, get her weight up, get her smiling more, get her playing more. And he understands that it will take time. And he understands that he has to be patient. And I think he understands as well, we tried to impress upon him how important it is for him to care for himself as well and to make sure that he also is getting all of the emotional support that he needs. Because indeed, it's not only the hostages who have been through such a trauma, but also their loved ones who have been on the other side, waiting, agonizing, and now grappling for a still challenging journey ahead. Clarissa Ward, thank you for that. Thank you for bringing us his story in the days after the attack and and continuing to keep him and Emily in the spotlight. We'll have a lot more of your interview with Thomas Hand a little bit later and get back to you soon, Clarissa. Thank you. So again, another hostage uh, release expected today after this temporary truce between Israel and Hamas was extended. We will speak next with the mother whose son Lior was killed on October 7th, and she is now waiting for the release of her 15-year-old daughter, Gali. And the suspect in the shooting of three Palestinian college students in Vermont pleading not guilty to attempted murder charges. An update on the victims ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, the breaking news this morning, 10 additional hostages expected to be released today as the truce between Israel and Hamas enters day five now. We are told the family members of those who are set to be released have been notified if their loved one is on the list. Let's go straight to Orrin Lieberman. He is live in Tel Aviv. So day five, longer than they thought it was going to be at the outset. What is the expectation today? Absolutely. Sometime in the next few hours, and and just so our viewers are aware, it is just after two o'clock in the afternoon local time. Sometime in the next few hours, if all goes smoothly, as it seems to have gone today until now, unlike previous days in, in some cases, we expect the hostage transfer to begin. The same process we've seen play out. Hamas will transfer hostages to the Red Cross, and then in different ways and through different means, they'll be brought into Israel. Crucially, we have heard from the family of the youngest hostage, 10-month-old Kfir Bibas, that his family's name is not on today's list. So there's a tremendous effort there to see what they can do to make sure that he is somehow brought out, either the list is updated today, which seems unlikely, or that he is on tomorrow's list, him and his family. Meanwhile, for those who have gotten out, we have seen some very emotional reunions, and this has played out now over the course of the past four days. Today will be the fifth day of this. This is video of 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi running into the arms or stepping off the bus into the arms of his mother, Batsheva. You can see that hug there, a hug that is 51 days in the making. There is also this video of the Broduch family. This is uh, four members of that family, at least, who were kidnapped. Hagar, the mother, Ofri, Yuval, and Uriah. Uh, you can see the joy on their faces in the hospital there, the dog joining in the, in the welcome here. He seems just as happy to see everybody as well there. In terms of the process to go from here, the prime minister's office says, as of their latest estimate, there are 173 hostages who remain in Gaza. That includes 17 foreign nationals. According to the Forum for the Missing Hostages and for the Families, six of those are children. Uh, Oren, 
Thank you for being with us every step of the way. Uh, everyone anticipating that expected release in just a couple of hours. We'll get back to you soon. Well, as Orrin just said, six children under the age of 18 are still being held hostage in Gaza. One of them is 13-year-old girl Galia Tarashinsky. Gali was declared a hostage after her 15-year-old brother, Lior, was killed in the October 7th terror attacks. Joining us now is Ruma Arusi Tarashansky. Tarashansky, Gali's and Lior's mother, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I would start with in what we just heard from Oren. Have you been notified at all uh, that Gali may be released in this next phase uh, of these hostage releases? Um, hi. It's a very difficult times uh, these days because uh, every day we're waiting for uh, for Gali, and uh, at night we have the list. And uh, each day until now, we heard that Gali is not in the list. So it's uh, very difficult for us. Uh, but we're still hoping that maybe tomorrow she will be in the list, and uh, we're waiting for the telephone. Uh, at night to tell us that. We're showing, we're showing pictures on the screen right now uh, of Gali. When you see the reunions that we've seen, when you know uh, that more than 60 hostages have been released up to this point, what do you feel? Um, I just spoke with uh, one of them, the friend of Gali, that was released uh, days ago, days ago. And I was so happy for her and for her family because we all in the, from the same kibbutz, Gali and her was friends. And uh, for me to know that some uh, children was uh, released, it's uh, it's uh, make me happy for them and uh, hopefully know that maybe Gali will be released also today, tomorrow, or the day after. So. It's very difficult to see that, uh, but it's also uh, bringing hope for me. Have you prepared for that moment, what it will be like? Well, I can imagine it for uh, 53 days, but I think uh, nothing will be like, uh, like the moment itself. Because you can't prepare. We, can't, we couldn't prepare for the 7th of October and the day after when the children was missing. And each day bring, bring to me and bring to us, to the family, another challenge, another new thing to deal with. And uh, we just uh, imagine the, the meeting and the hugging and the, the quiet that we will be together. And uh, we deal with every situation but we need her to be here with us. I, I, I do want to ask, I can't imagine as a parent, uh, going through what you're going through with your daughter while also uh, trying to grieve uh, for your son, Lior. Uh, he was a, a, a devoted fan to Maccabee Haifi, Haifi who they had a tribute to him on what would have been his 16th birthday. I just wonder how you think he would have felt uh, about that as you grieve his loss. Yeah, um, I have two children, Leo and Gali. Leo, uh, we even uh, didn't uh, make funeral, funeral yet because of the situation. Um, 
and uh, every memorial uh, made until now for him, it's for us, it's very uh, warm in the heart because we didn't uh, make it uh, ourselves yet. We, we will do it, but now it's, uh, we don't have time and, and don't have uh, any... Uh, we just want... Uh, now we making uh, things that Gali will come and uh, Leo will be the next uh, the next uh, grief that we will uh, when Gali, when Gali will came we have made time to grief on Leo and uh, until then Maccabi Haifa and other uh, all his friends and the surrounding us they it's very warm in the heart that they do it for us. Well, the, the support, uh, the community is certainly unequivocal. Uh, our hearts go out to you and your family. We are certainly hopeful uh, for Gali. Uh, Ruma Arusi, Toshansky, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's so striking to hear her talk about, she hasn't even been able to grieve. Right. right, the loss of her son, because she is waiting for her daughter every single day, praying that she is on that list. As a parent, I mean, how many times over the course of the last seven weeks as a parent, you try to think through, you can't. You can't. You can't. You, it's unfathomable. You can't. you can't. We are hoping her daughter is on that list tomorrow. Um, with aid hanging in the balance, aid for Israel, the IDF in Washington making a push for Senate Democrats who have been critical of Israel and want conditions on that aid to change their minds. And the suspect in the shooting of three Palestinian college students pleading not guilty to attempted murder charges as officials are working to determine if it was a hate crime. We're gonna be live in Burlington with the latest. Stay with us. Welcome back. We are learning a lot more this morning about the shooting of three Palestinian college students in Burlington, Vermont. Two of those students do remain in the hospital, one with critical injuries to his spine. The police chief calls this a hateful act as officials try to determine whether it was indeed a hate crime. The suspect, Jason Eaton, has pleaded not guilty to attempted murder charges. Bola Sandoval joins us with the latest reporting. Here he is in Vermont, a small storybook town. You wouldn't, we're just shocked. We're just shocked. This morning, one of three Palestinian college students shot over the weekend is out of the hospital, according to a source close to the families. The other two remain in ICU. The mother of victim Hisham Awartani says her son has a long road to recovery. He has another month in hospital um, and then uh, several months of physical therapy. Um, but currently the doctors say that he's lost uh, functional mobility in his legs. Relatives say the men were visiting Vermont on their Thanksgiving break when they were shot Saturday night. The three of them decided they go around the block. They like to walk around the neighborhood when they're there. They've each, uh, each of the other boys have been to my mother's house for Thanksgiving uh, twice. And Hisham has been visiting Burlington for about 10 years. And so he knows the community very, very well. They were just walking, um, talking amongst themselves. They were wearing their uh, kafiyas, which are traditional Palestinian scarves. And this gentleman stepped out of the dark and pulled out a handgun and sh fired four times. Investigators are trying to determine if they were the targets of a hate crime. 
There's no one with common sense who can think about three young men, two of whom were wearing uh, kafiyas, uh, who were speaking a mixture of English and Arabic, walking down a street to suddenly and randomly be, without apparent any apparently any other motive, attacked by someone and shot by that person, and not think that that seems like a crime driven by hate. Officers located the suspect, 48-year-old Jason Eaton, Sunday afternoon near the scene of the attack. Police say he lives in an apartment building in front of the shooting scene. According to an affidavit of probable cause, Eaton told ATF agents, I've been waiting for you. Investigators say a pistol found in his apartment matches the shell casings at the scene and that Eaton acquired the gun legally just a few months ago. He was arraigned Monday and pleaded not guilty. Eaton is being held without bail. The families of the victims released a joint statement Monday calling the attack a crime fueled by hate and saying they welcome the investigation and pursuit of hate crime charges. These three young men grew up in Ramallah. They're best friends from growing up. They grew up under uh, military occupation. And who would imagine that they would come to a place like this to celebrate Thanksgiving, and this is when their lives would be at risk. And here in Burlington, certainly no doubt that this was a hateful attack, but was it hate motivated? That is the complicated legal question that prosecutors now have to answer. We heard from them just yesterday, Poppy, who say so far, and it could change at any moment, they have found no evidence to support the additional hate crime enhancement that would go on top of the attempted murder charge, the three attempted murder charges that the suspect in this case is facing. But meanwhile, here at the hospital, it is becoming clearer and clearer. The more you hear the stories of these three young men, they face a very long journey to recovery, not just physically, but certainly emotionally as well. Of course they do. Uh, that's an interesting and important development. Polo, thank you very much for the reporting for us in Burlington. And in our next hour here, we will be joined by Elizabeth Price. She is the mother of Hisham Arwatani. Of course, he is one of the students who is still in the hospital. Ukraine says a town on the eastern front of the war has seen nonstop shelling and fighting. Coming up, we're going to show you more of this new video from eastern Ukraine recorded by a soldier on the front lines. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is warning that aid to Israel and Ukraine could be in jeopardy if Republicans do not budge on including border security in the package. We will be joined by Republican Senator Mike Rounds. Where do things stand? He's with us next. Well, this just in, we have learned Israeli defense officials came to Capitol Hill last night and met with some Senate Democrats over their war with Hamas. A source telling CNN that the unclassified meeting gave Democrats the opportunity to ask questions about the war as a growing number have grown concerned about Israel's prosecution of their campaign in Gaza. This all comes as the end of the legislative session is fast approaching. Congress has not yet passed additional aid for Israel or Ukraine. And immigration reform is really the centerpiece of the logjam right now. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he will bring a national security package to the floor that ties together Israel and Ukraine funding. He could do that as soon as next week. Republican leaders are insisting on making that aid contingent on tightening immigration laws. Schumer warning those demands could sink the whole thing. The worst thing we can do is to make something as bipartisan as Ukraine aid conditional on partisan issues that have little chance of becoming law. 
Sadly, that's what may well be happening right now, because the biggest holdup to, to the national security supplement is an insistence by some Republicans, just some, on partisan border policy as a condition for Ukraine aid. Joining us now is Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. He serves on the Intelligence and the Armed Services Committee. Sir, I'm glad to have you this morning. Uh, this is the sticking point. The last we heard in the reporting last night was the issue of parole, for example. Uh, you have been uh, supportive of more funding for Israel and Ukraine, but you also say they've got to be tied to the border. At all costs, is it worth it if it sinks the whole thing? I, I don't think it will sink the whole thing. I think this is actually more of a bipartisan concern. Uh, Democrats have also expressed similar concerns with regard to the fact that the southern border has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. We're really talking about the issue of amnesty and parole. Mm -hmm. And these are the same items that we've laid out now for several weeks. There are ongoing negotiations between Republicans and Democrats. They're serious in nature, and I think that they can come to a successful conclusion. But in order to get this aid package, which the president has requested, and in fact, he's asked for additional funds for funding for border protection yeah. security. Um, he's included that in here. Mm -hmm. We're simply saying it will not work unless you change the policies that are in place right now at the southern border. About 77% of Americans agree with us on that issue. And we think the vast majority of Democrats quietly agree with us as well. It's a matter of getting it done in an appropriate fashion. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's about time and it's about how you get there. Let, let me ask you about uh, what some of your Democratic colleagues in the Senate are saying. Dick Durbin, the majority whip, said this is a big ask. And he pointed to the fact, you know, it's been 1986 is the last time we saw comprehensive immigration reform in this country. Chris, Senator Chris Murphy, a little bit more blunt. Let me read you what he said. I wish Republicans weren't demanding that we solve a really complicated domestic political issue in order to keep Putin from marching through Europe. Is that a point worth considering, Senator? Well, I, I wouldn't phrase it in those terms at all. In fact, I think this is very doable. The American people are simply saying, look, you're asking for about $109 billion for defense purposes, but why aren't you fixing the policies at the southern border where you've had 8.4 million encounters in just, well, since Biden took office? The reality is, is it's a policy issue which has got to be changed, and it can be changed. And, and this is not something that should cause a great upheaval within within the United States. This is one that should actually be a part of the package. And it's a good thing to get done. We should be defending the southern border. And in doing so, you'll get support for the entire package. There are currently on the Senate calendar 14 days left for you guys yeah. to get this done. And, and you said uh, if we carry it into next year, it will be, quote, too late and the funding will be gone. Is it realistic <clears throat> to get done? Really, you think from those closed door conversations with those across the aisle, You'll get it done in two weeks? I, I do believe that that is entirely possible. And here's the reason why. We know what the aid package looks like. And, and the vast majority of us recognize we, we want to support Israel. We want to support Ukraine. And we recognize also, though, that the vast majority of the folks back home are saying, why are you sending money elsewhere when we need to fix our own southern border? But this is doable. And the issues are not that difficult. It is not comprehensive in nature. It is specific. It is amnesty and it is parole. It's those two issues. Yeah, well, They're both fixable and, 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 and easily within the realm of getting it done. They are big issues. I do want to move on to... They are. They are. I want to move on to Israel. And if you agree with uh, 
some senators, Bernie Sanders, one of them, Chris Murphy, another one, who are saying more aid to Israel has to come with conditions. Um, Senator Sanders has been asking for things like a freeze on settlement expansion in the West Bank, a commitment to a two-state solution, uh, a, a real change in Israel's approach to the bombings in Gaza. Do you think it needs to be conditional, more aid to Israel, or unconditional? You know, I, I go back to what happened after 9-11 for us. Our, our allies didn't walk in and simply say, These, we're going to have the following conditions before we help you. And uh, I think right now, mm-hmm. as an ally of Israel, we have to look at that and say, look, this is their 9-11. Um, let's help them right now, but it's okay for us to discuss with them long-term how that support continues on. Okay. And if they're losing the public relations battle, then they need to be told, you may have to look at, uh, at, at other approaches they are? to getting this job done. Do you think right now? Yeah, Israel's- I think they are, yeah. Yeah, I, I think they are. I, I think they're, they're very cognizant of the fact that they need to win the public relations battle as well, but they have to take out Hamas. And uh, we should be supportive in that, but we should also be providing them advice but okay. uh, not necessarily limiting it, saying okay. we're not going to provide assistance if you don't meet the following conditions. I think that would be a mistake. Don't condition it now. Uh, Senator Mike Rounds, no. thank you very much. Come back soon. Thank you. Ukraine's Eastern Front continues to get bombarded by Russian forces. Coming up, we have new video from the trenches of the front lines taken by a Ukrainian commander. After 50 days being held hostage, four-year-old Abigail Adan finally reunited with her family. Look at that. We will speak with two of her family members about her return. That's ahead. Ten people are dead in Ukraine after severe winter after a severe winter storm left hundreds of towns without power over the last two days. Engineers are currently trying to restore electricity to the areas. It comes as the city of Kharkiv completed its mandatory evacuation of children. That evacuation began after local officials said there had been increased Russian attacks on civilian targets. Nearly 300 children had left since the November 3rd order. It highlights an escalation on the eastern front of the war. Right now, fierce fighting has raged for more than a month. Russian forces have launched a large-scale attack with round-the-clock shelling and waves of armored vehicles in an attempt to encircle certain towns. We are getting a new look at the front lines there from a soldier who recorded his experience in the trenches where he and his team came just feet from Russian tanks. CNN's Anna Korn has the story. In the pre-dawn light, a cacophony of military firepower fills the air. Incoming explosions, outgoing fire. As one of Ukraine's assault infantry units, the 47th Mechanized Brigade, tries to take back trenches in Avdivka, captured by Russian forces. We need drones, we need drones, says company commander Oleg Sensov, filming on his GoPro. The bastards are sitting in the tree line shooting at us, he explains. In a rare interview, the former filmmaker, imprisoned by the Russians in 2014 for five years, tells me about last month's mission in what has become one of the hottest spots on the Eastern Front. My goal was for people to watch this and know what this war is really like, because it's very important to record it so that people know now and know later what a cruel and terrible war it is. One of his troops has been hit. 
They remove his body armor to reveal a bullet hole. As they apply a chest seal, the team has even bigger problems on their hands. Duck, the tank is coming, yells one of them. And then the war from the sky begins. Drone, drone, FPV, cries a soldier. I see it, another shouts back. Minutes later, another soldier is hit, this time shrapnel to the legs. While talking on the radio, reporting on his injured troops, Oleg also gets hit, but doesn't realize for a few moments. There's a small hole. I see the blood. You're bleeding, says the female paramedic. Quickly patched up, Oleg remains focused and composed until suddenly they hear the rumble of tanks. Oleg's unit tries to bury themselves in the earth as one drives by. The female paramedic cries, We are surrounded. The tanks are shooting on us. Approximately 40 tons of terror so close, the earth is shaking. Drone footage taken by the Ukrainian military shows four Russian tanks firing on the tree line. Positioned in those trees are three Ukrainian assault groups in trenches spread out over a kilometre. Oleg's unit is in the middle. They were the only ones to be spared. We failed to hold our position and had to retreat. We had injuries but survived, but the other two groups were almost completely destroyed. This is the first time Oleg has failed a mission as commander in the almost two years that he's been fighting. The 47-year-old tells me he wants the world to know the truth on the front line. A war this father of four is returning to this week. Phil, this is the reality on the front line. This is what the war in Ukraine looks like. And it may have fallen from the headlines, the global headlines, but this war is being fought every single day by those brave soldiers. President uh, uh, Zelensky, he has described the battle in Avdivka as an onslaught. He's also said that this is the battle that will determine the course of the war. And recently, we heard from the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, General Zalushny, who admitted that this war is now a stalemate, that both sides are fighting these fierce and, and bloody fights just to hold ground. That's a remarkable piece. Anna Corrin, thank you. Well, this just in brand new reporting about what Mike Pence told the special counsel investigating January 6th, his private warnings to former President Trump and why investigators are even zeroing in on a comma in Pence's book. And Thomas Hand waited 50 days to see his daughter Emily return from Hamas captivity. CNN's Clarissa Ward just spoke with him about their reunion. We're going to see that powerful interview. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, there are new details emerging about former Vice President Mike Pence's conversations with special counsel Jack Smith. ABC News is reporting some specific details from those conversations earlier this year, where Pence was questioned about personal notes he took after meetings with then-President Trump. And one line of questioning had to do with the placement of a comma in a quote from Pence's book. Pence wrote that he told Trump on Christmas Day 2020, quote, you know, comma, I don't have, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome of the election on January 6th. That, that comma there, 
That's key. ABC News reporting Pence told prosecutors it should never have been placed there, that it was supposed to be an admonishment. CNN's Ellie Honig Mm -hmm. joins us now. Ellie, without getting into the comma specifically, what does it tell you that Smith's team is being that granular about their process here? Well, Phil, this is what prosecutors do. Let's remember, this trial is going to happen. It is under 100 days away from right now. Mike Pence is going to be a pivotal, perhaps the pivotal witness for the prosecutors. He has this sort of unique standing here where he's both an eyewitness and a victim. He's a victim in the sense that he was the recipient of Donald Trump's pressure campaign. He was the one who the rioters were chanting for, but he's also a witness to crucial one-on-one conversations at times that he had with Donald Trump. And there's no other person on the planet who can give prosecutors the kind of insight that Mike Pence can give them. I think the key reporting here is that Pence directly told Donald Trump he had seen no evidence of election fraud, add Mike Pence to that long list, that he did not believe he had the constitutional authority to throw out the vote. Mm So Mike Pence is a crucial witness anyway. You cut this and it makes sense to me the prosecutors are digging in at that level of granularity. Can we just get into the commas for a moment though, Ellie, because you read it, you know, I don't have the authority to change the outcome of the election (laughs) on January 6th, or you know, I don't have the authority. I mean, that that is a huge difference, is it not? What would it do for the prosecution it here? Does. Pence is saying it's the latter. Commas matter. Every word matters. Every piece of punctuation matters. Think about how that changes the meaning of this sentence. On the one hand, it's written with the comma, which would mean, you know, in the conversational sense, you know, sir, I don't think I have the authority to do that. Without the comma, which Pence now says the comma shouldn't be there, it means, you know, Donald Trump, you know that I don't think I have the authority to throw out the election. So that comma, it may seem trivial, but it makes a big difference in the actual meaning of the sentence. Ellie, Pence could take the stand uh, when this goes to trial. If you're Trump's lawyers, how do you cross-examine and question Pence as a witness? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, Mike Pence did write a book where he came out with some of these details, many of these details, but not all of them. And I think the argument you'll hear from Trump's lawyers is that anything he didn't put in his book is sort of what we call a recent fabrication, something he made up after the fact. And I think some of what they'll press Mike Pence on is that he has said that at times he believed there were irregularities in the voting, although ultimately he comes around to the view that there was no evidence of fraud. But I think he'll also press Mike Pence on the fact that Donald Trump was here different pieces of advice from different advisors. Some of them, who I think are generally seen as more responsible, were telling Trump there's no evidence of fraud, but other people were telling Trump that there was evidence of fraud and you should push ahead. So I think defense lawyers for Trump are going to focus on that latter part. Ellie Honig, thank you. Commas matter. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. See you soon. CNN This Morning continues now. The judge should be here in a couple of minutes. I'm like, oh, don't believe it. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the door opened up and she just ran. It was um, beautiful, just like in, uh, just like I imagined it. You know, running together. What an interview. You will hear much more of that soon. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us this hour. That was the father of nine-year-old Emily Han describing the moment he reunited with his beloved little girl after she spent more than seven weeks in Hamas captivity. And this morning, he sat down with our own Clarissa Ward for his first interview since Emily came home. 
And right now, we're watching and waiting for Hamas to release 10 more hostages today after the temporary truce with Israel was extended for two more days. Late yesterday, Hamas released a fourth round of captives, that group, including a mother and her three-year-old twin daughters. Sadly, their father still being held. Take a look at this video this morning. What you're looking at is 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi getting a big emotional hug from his mother as they were finally reunited last night. The only American hostage released since Friday is four-year-old Abigail Adan. Later this hour, we'll be joined by her family. We have team coverage this morning. Let's start with Caitlin Collins in Tel Aviv. Caitlin, one American released. What do we know about when officials expect the other Americans, two in particular, two American women, to be released? It's a question that even U.S. officials are wondering right now. They certainly believed that those Americans would be in that first group of 50. There are several Americans who are still being held, but there are three that they believed would qualify for women and children and that would make it into those first four days of the hostage releases. So far, that has not happened. And of course, now we're on day five of what was really just supposed to be a four-day temporary truce. It has now been extended for two more days. It's clear why it was extended. Every side right now feels like they are benefiting from this. It's quiet in Gaza right now. There is a lot of aid going in. You are not seeing the IDF forces who are there move around much. They've maintained these, these truce lines as they are referring to them. And obviously Israel is getting its hostages back. And you're seeing that after emotional reunion and emotional reunion with all of these families who want to know whether or not their loved ones are going to be next. And I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind here is this is such a heartbreaking day by day basis for all of these families who they get a call from the Israeli government each night once Hamas has handed over its list, either telling them, yes, your loved one is on it or no, they are not. And so they're kind of just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. And so that is where we are on day five. I think a big question right now is what comes after day six? It's not clear on either side yet if it will get extended again, what this will ultimately look like or who Hamas has left in its captivity to produce that would fit under the under this category. What we are seeing, though, are, are a lot of emotional reunions between these two families. And one that is probably the most searing is Emily Hand and her father. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, is here in Tel Aviv. And obviously, Clarissa, you spoke to him. You know, no one will forget whenever he said, you know, he initially thought his daughter was killed. Where do you even start now that, that they've been reunited? I think there is this obvious joy, and you saw that in that clip, the moment that he saw her, that he held her. He talked about squeezing her too hard. He talked about how skinny she'd become, how pale she was, and how for days she would only speak in a whisper because she had been told repeatedly during her captivity to be quiet, to be quiet. And she's only just now rediscovering her voice. And there is a sense that it is going to be a very long journey ahead. And we asked about the events of October 7th. And of course, one of the biggest challenges for Tom as a dad has been basically telling Emily about what happened in Kibbutz Berry, where they were living, and what happened to people in her own community, part of her family. Tom's first wife, Narkiza, who was basically like a second mother to Emily, the mother of his two older children. She was killed on October 7th. And this is something that he had to break to Emily. Take a look. Does Emily understand what happened on October 7th? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, she does. Um, uh, how do you tell her, you know, your second mum is dead, killed, shot? 
when we got back to the hospital, I asked the psychiatrist, you know, what do I do? What should I do? What should I do? She said, you've just got to tell her straight. It's the best way. Okay. So, yeah. That was, that was very hard because we, we told her and, you know, her, her little eyes glazed up and she just went, <gasps> took a sharp, sharp in intake of breath. Terrible thing to tell a child, but um, as they recommend that you have to close the book. It sounds cruel, but you have to stop that hope. So, so you, 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 you've got to stop that. It has to be final. Our kiss is dead. And you feel how much pain there still is, even for families that have had the fortune to have their loved ones return to them. There is such a profound sense of grief for all that's been lost, for, for the loss of Emily's innocence. He said that she's starting to smile more, she's starting to play more, but even last night, out of nowhere, she hid underneath the cover in their hotel room and just started sobbing for an hour and didn't stop and didn't want to be comforted and didn't want to talk about it. And he said he's been told by the psychiatrists and psychologists who he's consulting with that it's really important to allow this to unfold at its own pace, to allow Emily to share when she's ready and not to push her too much to try to get more details of her captivity, although we, we are learning some more of those details. What are we learning about how she was kept? So interestingly, Caitlin, she was not held in the tunnels, as many of the hostages have been. She was held in houses and moved frequently house to house because the bombardment, of course, was intensive. The Israeli military was on the move. They're worried about being um, targeted or located. So there was a lot of movement from house to house. She was kept intact with this unit, the young girl who she had been spending the night with, having that sleepover with, Hilla Rotem, and her mother, Raya. Hilla and Raya were ultimately separated for reasons that we don't fully understand. But he said that Raya really was like a mother uh, to Emily as well as Hilla during that time. And she and Hilla became incredibly close. He describes how she used to stroke Hilla's ear at night to help her fall asleep as a source of comfort. He also talked about the fact that she hasn't been physically harmed. She has terrible uh, case of head lice and there wasn't really enough food. She was having to, they got breakfast every day, but lunch and dinner, not always. She learned to like to eat just plain olive oil and bread because sometimes that was all that they had. And beyond that, he is really just waiting for her to give more information, to give more details when she's able to talk about it with the full realization that that might take quite some time. Yeah, I can't even imagine how many questions he has for her about what she's gone through because, I mean, just to be a parent and to be protective and to want to know everything that she's, that she's seen and to not be able to necessarily outright ask that. It's really hard. He, he said that. He said that I want to know everything. I want to understand everything that she's been through. And every child and every hostage is different. For example, with Hilla, who is now reunited with her brother, Hilla wants to talk about it nonstop. She wants to give every single detail. And it is a form of catharsis for her to talk about it. Emily is very different. Emily, she and she's younger, Emily, keep in mind. She just turned nine years old in captivity. And so it's much harder for her to talk about it. She is still finding her voice. She is still 
struggling, I think, to process what she's been through. And even some small detail that really stayed with me again, Tom asked her, how long do you think you were held for in captivity? Because, of course, they didn't have phones or clocks or calendars. And she said, Hilla and I thought we were were held for a year, which I think goes to show you just how your entire universe is kind of flipped upside down, time stands still, everything is different and alien and foreign and... I think it's going to take her a very long time before she really starts to let go of that, reacclimatize. And for Tom, of course, as well, there's a lot of guilt involved, even though, of course, he's done nothing wrong and, and nothing to justify feeling that way. But as a parent, you understand it. Why couldn't I help her? Why couldn't I save her? He talked about trying to imagine whether he should have sneaked into Gaza at some point to rescue her. And all the things that go through his mind, I think sometimes we forget the trauma the people on this side who haven't been held in captivity, but who have been held hostage in a different way emotionally by their own impotence to, to, to safely get their loved ones out freely. And obviously now Emily is free. So many others are not. That's where Tom's focus is right now on trying to push and campaign for the others to get out to. Yeah, their journey is nothing short of remarkable. Clarissa Ward, we'll be watching much more of that interview. Great interview. Poppy, Phil, obviously just one of the many stories that we're seeing here as these reunions are happening. And, and yes, they look so happy in the videos, and they are, but they're also feel filled with so much trauma, as you can still yeah. see. Yeah, it's such a long path ahead. And as you noted, so many uh, parents, children being reunited. After 50 days, four-year-old Abigail Adan is finally reunited with her loved ones. We're going to speak with two of her family members about her return. That's ahead. Also happening right now, this rescue mission underway to save 41 workers who have been trapped inside a tunnel in northern India for 17 days. Some should come out at any moment. We'll take you there live. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I believe President Trump was the right president at the right time. I was proud to serve America in his administration, and I agree with a lot of his policies. But the truth is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. That was Nikki Haley at a rally in Bluffton, South Carolina, pitching voters on why she thinks she's a better choice than Donald Trump. With just seven weeks until Republican voters in Iowa have their voices heard, Haley touted polls showing her in second place in the first set of early state races. She also told the crowd that she expects the field to narrow after Iowa and after New Hampshire, which she suggested would allow her to have a real chance to win her home state of South Carolina. Trump, however, still has a wide lead in all three of those states. But you can't deny Haley's rise in the polls, and that has raised questions for some about the viability of some of her candidates, including our next guest, Chris Christie, one of Trump's biggest critics, who has staked out a strategy to show strong support in New Hampshire. And he is with us this morning, former governor of New Jersey, presidential candidate. Good morning. It's great to have you. Good to be here. So uh, we're listening to you this weekend with our friend Dana Bash on State of the Union. And you said something we haven't heard before, that you're in this through the through the convention, the summer. Yep. But here's what you told us in July. Listen. 
after I lost in New Hampshire mm -hmm. eight years ago, Poppy, I got out. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I wouldn't feel comfortable asking donors uh, for more money mm. um, or voters for their vote if I didn't see a realistic path you to victory. Then you also told the New York Times in September, if I don't do well in New Hampshire, then I leave. What changed? Uh, well, nothing's really changed. I just have gone much better in New Hampshire. And so it seems to me that um, there's no path now that doesn't include me continuing. I'm going to do well in New Hampshire. What's well? Uh, I Look, I think right now I'm in the top three, and I think I'm going to do even better than that. Um, and so, you know, that's what's changed. What's changed is that we've started to move up in the polls pretty significantly. Um, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy have dropped significantly in New Hampshire. And so that's what's changed. And so um, I'm going to continue to keep you guys updated um, as circumstances change. And uh, circumstances have changed. So you like the polls right now? Well, <laughs> you know, look, I still don't think the polls are really extraordinarily accurate. Um, and, and my proof of that is, just look back to the history. In 07, at this time, Thanksgiving of 07, um, you know, uh, Mitt Romney was winning the Iowa caucuses. Uh, and Mike Huckabee was at 4%. He wound up winning. Um, in, in 2011, uh, at this point, Newt Gingrich was winning the Iowa caucuses by a pretty wide margin. And Rick Santorum, or, or um, yeah, or rather Rick Santorum, who ultimately wound up winning, won, yeah. um, was at 3% on Thanksgiving of 2011. And in 2015, Ben Carson was winning by 10 points, and Ted Cruz was at 7%. So, and he wound up winning. So it's not that I distrust these particular polls. I just know that voters make their decisions very late in this business, and they're willing to change. In fact, in a recent poll we did, um, three-quarters of Donald Trump's voters in New Hampshire said they are uh, open to changing their minds between now and primary day on January 23rd. So, you know, I know everybody wants to make this race over um, now, um, but it's not over, and it's, it's not even close to over. And when you look, just look at the history. Forget about predictions. Let's look at what's happened over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And what's happened tells you that there's a long way to go here, and I like the fact that we're gaining momentum now. It does seem, though, that the, the, the new kind of it candidate in the field right now is Nikki Haley. She's been rising in the polls. There's a lot of talk about her. One of the issues that I think she was able to differentiate or has gotten credit for differentiating herself is on abortion, particularly in the wake uh, of what we saw in Virginia, what we saw uh, a couple weeks ago in November. But I was struck a couple weeks ago in Iowa, she said she would sign a six-week abortion ban. Poppy asked you uh, about abortion when you were on set a couple months ago. Would you sign a six-week abortion ban? I would not sign a six-week national abortion ban. And, and the reason I wouldn't is because we fought for 50 years, and we had this conversation a little bit before. We fought for 50 years to put this in the hands of the people, to say the federal government, in that case the Supreme Court, had taken it out of the hands of the people and given them no voice. Now people are having a voice, and we've seen it. You mentioned Virginia, Michigan, Ohio. Kansas. And one thing I know for sure is there is no consensus around a six-week abortion ban nationally. Do you think that makes her unelectable? I think uh, it makes it much election? more difficult in a general election for her hmm. because you could see when Governor DeSantis signed that bill in, in Florida, it certainly affected his popularity with a broader electorate. Um, and, and my view is this. I want the people, not the politicians, to make this decision. So let people vote in the states. We see a great um, exercise in democracy going on all across this country. This is one of the most emotional issues anyone's got to, to deal with. I'm pro-life. That's my personal belief, and I believe strongly in it. But here's the bottom line, is that people should be able to make this choice. It's too emotional to put this in the hands of politicians. And imagine if you're the American people, and you watch this House of Representatives try to pick a speaker and see what they went through. Watch this Senate 
not be able to promote military officers because they're so paralyzed. You want to put abortion in the hands of those folks? Mm. I don't. So as president, I would not sign a six-week abortion ban. It doesn't represent consensus in the country, and it's taking away, most importantly to me, what we fought for for 50 years. Let's put this in the hands of the people. Let each state make their own decision. Let's talk about money, okay, because it matters a whole lot yep. in politics. There are some big money guys, and there are guys who, Ken Langone, who backed you in 2016 until you dropped out of the race, uh, planning to meet with Nikki Haley next week. He told CNBC, the only person I see who can give Trump a run for his money is Nikki Haley. Ken Griffin, the big financier, big Republican donor, told Bloomberg he was actively contemplating it when it comes to Nikki Haley. Are you worried about the big money going after Haley? I'm really not. because really? No, because none of them have. You don't want it? Well, well none of them have. And, and look, I've, I've met with Ken Griffin and spoken to him as well. Um, I think he's going through the process of trying to decide if there's someone that he believes could beat Donald Trump and if he wants to support that person. And there's plenty of other folks. And we've had a number of people, uh, both folks that I've known over the years on Wall Street and folks around the country who have been supporting our campaign and supporting our super PAC. And so I, I don't feel concerned at all. We feel like we have, you always can use more money, Poppy. So no one's going to say no. This is why you surprised me when you said you're not worried. No, well, but you don't, we can't worry about this stuff. You go out and work. Yeah. And you make your case to the American people including these donors, as to why you're the best alternative. And if you're convincing, you'll get them to write a check. And if you're not, you won't. But I don't sit every day worrying about it. And look, um, Governor Haley's campaign is good at putting out process stories, like even stories about someone meeting with someone. I, I'm, I don't put out stories about every person I meet with for two reasons. One, I don't know what the meeting is going to lead to. And two, I like to keep those things quiet. Uh, those people tend to be more honest with you when they're quiet. Um, and so, you know, the process stories are wonderful. But in the end, what's going to matter is um, who are people voting for? And my concern about this abortion issue is, is real because you can't say one thing in Iowa and something different in New Hampshire. Now, I was on the stage next to Governor Haley when she gave a long talk at, the, I think it was the second debate, about how we don't want to divide the country on this. I don't, I, we have to respect everyone's opinions. But then when she's sitting across from Bob Vanderplatz in Iowa, a much more conservative place, she says, I'd sign a six-week abortion ban. Well, which one is it? And I, I, th I think we have to take her at a word that she would sign a six-week abortion ban. And I don't think that represents consensus in this country. And the problem is you're going to divide the country even more, and Republicans don't need that right now. We need to win. And to win, we need to let people speak mm. themselves, not put it in the hands of politicians. It seems like something that might come up at a debate. And if someone asks, you know, you know, <laughs> Phil, I'll answer. I mean, the thing that's different about my debate performances from the other folks is I actually listen to the questions and then answer the question that's asked rather than the answer that I memorized beforehand. I mean, it's on. a crazy strategy, <laughs> but we're going to we're going to actually try to be responsive to people. And I think that's why you've seen our numbers go up after the last debate, because I think people looked on the stage and said, these are extraordinarily serious times. And we don't want to be treated unseriously. And when you say one thing in Iowa and something different in New Hampshire, when you're not telling people a responsive answer to a direct question, people begin to wonder how serious you are. And with the war in Israel, with the war in Ukraine, with the problems we have here at home economically, um, and, the, and the unrest that we have on our college campuses, mm -hmm. um, you need a serious president who's going to answer the questions directly and tell people the truth. That's why we're running. Governor Chris Christie, we always appreciate you coming in. Thank hey, you it's very great much. to be back here. Thank you. Good to see you both.
So ahead, the suspect in the shooting of those three Palestinian college students has pleaded not guilty to attempted murder charges. The mother of Hisham Arwatani, one of the students who is still hospitalized, she joins us live next. Well, we have new reporting just into CNN. Hunter Biden's lawyers have told the House Oversight Committee that he is willing to testify on December 13th in their inquiry into his actions, but only if he can do so publicly. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us now. Caitlin, this is your reporting. What's behind this offer? Well, mine and Evan Perez's, uh, we obtained a letter from Hunter Biden's lawyers to the House Oversight Committee, this committee that has been doing an inquiry into the Biden family and any transactions they may have with foreign entities or foreign people. And now the president's son is willing to testify publicly, uh, not behind closed doors. His lawyers say, you know, he got a subpoena. They are willing to respond to that subpoena and they are willing to put him under oath before this House committee. Now they are making very clear they disagree with what the House committee is doing here. Uh, but they do say, and they write in this letter today, sent by Hunter Biden's lawyers, we have seen you use closed door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts and misinform the public. We therefore propose opening the door. If, as you claim, your efforts are important and involve issues that Americans should know about, then let the light shine on these proceedings. So these proceedings that they're talking about and the reason that Hunter Biden was subpoenaed here earlier this month is because there is an ongoing inquiry uh, led by the chairman of the Oversight Committee, Jim Comer. He has been looking into the possibility of any connection that Hunter Biden's business dealings or others in the Biden family may have with the president, some evidence of corruption, but even Republicans in uh, not on that committee, but around the Republican caucus have really questioned whether this is an impeachment inquiry that should go forward into the president. There's a lot of doubt that they're finding any facts or evidence to this effect. But Hunter Biden's lawyers say, you subpoenaed, we're ready, put him on the stand. We'll see what happens next. Kevin Polance, thank you. An update for you this morning on the man who uh, is accused of shooting three Palestinian students in Vermont. Police say when they approached 48-year-old Jason Eaton at his home Sunday, he said, quote, I've been waiting for you. He pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted second-degree murder. He is being held without bail, and police are still investigating if they are going to charge this as a hate crime. There is some good news to report this morning. Sources tell CNN one of the three men has been released from the hospital. He has not been identified, however, due to concerns for his safety. I'm joined now by Elizabeth Price. She is the mother of one of the victims, Hisham Aratani. He's a student at Brown University, and he and his two friends were shot while just out for a walk after a birthday party. Elizabeth, thank you very, very much for being with me this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. We understand your, your son is still hospitalized and expected to be for about the next month. Can you just update us on his condition this morning? Yes, I mean, it's, it's um, been hard to, to get a catch up with the condition um, because I'm traveling and um, my mother who is there is exhausted and Isham is exhausted. So uh, we're going to be um, there in, in um, a few, like I think 24 hours. And so we'll be able to be on the ground and know exactly what's going on. Um, the last I knew, he was still in ICU, um, immobilized to try and get the swelling down on his back. 
making sure that he's been getting medication to make sure his spinal fluid and blood is is at a good enough level to keep it, um, you know, healing. Um, his clavicle is broken and he has a fractured uh, thumb. Um, due to the, the bullet embedded in his back, he has a hard time regulating his body temperature. So they're managing that with either keeping him warm or packing with ice bags. And um, in, in total, I guess the sum diagnosis is that he has an incomplete uh, spinal injury, which means that he can feel his legs, but currently he can't move them. Uh you had said last night that you just want to be with him as his mother, of course, as every mother would. I'm so yeah. glad that you're on your way and that you're going to be able to be by his side. You're in Amman, Jordan. And as I understand it, the King of Jordan yes. is sending help. Is that right for him? It's, it's amazing the support that we've received. Um, the King's personal physician has reached out to me uh, to express, uh, to convey His Majesty's concern for uh, Hisham and the other boys and is hoping to send uh, a specialist to, to meet Hisham and assess Hisham and identify what kind of support Hisham needs. Wow. So it is really an act of generosity uh, by uh, King Abdullah. It, it certainly is. We're really Elizabeth, one of the reasons that your family deci decided, along with Hisham, that he should stay in the U.S. for the holidays is you thought he would be safe here. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And then, and then yes. This I mean, yes, yes. I mean, I, I think it's um, it, it was a shock to us that this would happen. And Burlington is a quiet place. It's I mean, it is still a community that I admire. I respect. I value. It's a place where. You know, it is more like our home, which is so community and family oriented in, in Palestine than any other place I've been to in America. So I still respect uh, the Burlington community, but it just goes to show that with easy access to guns and in a context where um, the mainstream narrative and and uh, um, leaders in the community and, and in the government um, exhort and political and the political spectrum, you know, exhort people to um, to other to other the people who are being uh, different from them, um, that creates opportunities or creates uh, thoughts that people might act on. Mm -hmm. And when you have a gun and you act on something, it can have um, lethal consequences or in the case of these children, life-changing consequences. I know you're very close to all the boys. Uh, they grew up together. I, I know you must be counting the minutes until you can get here and uh, embrace them all. Elizabeth, we are rooting for all of them. Thank you. Very much. All right. Thank you very much. Well, after 50 days, four-year-old Abigail Adan is finally reunited with her loved ones. We're going to speak with two of her family members about that return. That's next. After some 50 days of captivity in Gaza, this was the moment four-year-old Abigail Adan was finally reunited with her loved ones. Hamas kidnapped Abigail on October 7th. That, of course, was the same day she became an orphan. You know, her mom was killed in front of her when her, when her kibbutz was uh, attacked by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Abigail ran to her dad then, who then was gunned down, gunned down as well, while using his body to shield little Abigail. She then ran to a neighbor for help, where they were all taken hostage. Abigail is a dual American citizen. She was released on Sunday, and that makes her the first American hostage freed since the start of this truce. She was taken to Schneider 
Children's Medical Center. You can see her there happily reunited with her aunt, her uncle, and her grandparents. And joining us now again, Abigail Adon's great aunt, Liz Naftali, and her cousin, Noah. Liz and Noah, I mean, this day, the fact that it is finally here, that you can see those images, everything that you were praying for, how does it feel, Liz? Well, it's, it's a miracle. It's remarkable. Uh, we thank you for having us again. And I'm so glad that we're on this side where uh, Abigail, who turned four on Friday, is free and she is with her family and she is with her sister and her brother. So it feels amazing in that respect because she is now safe at home. But there's two things. One is there's still many hostages that haven't been released and are not home with their loved ones. And for Abigail, this is going to be a journey. Yeah. I mean, she witnessed her parents both be murdered. And so this is going to be a long journey for her. But the fact that she is home and that she is with her family, we can at least have a sigh of relief um, and know that she's with her loved ones. You know, Noah, to that point, the, the journey ahead, uh, you almost can't comprehend how difficult it will be, but you also see kind of the spark in her eyes, the smile in those photos as she's surrounded by family. Can you talk about the, the family infrastructure that's, that's in place for her as she goes through that journey? Abigail is a little girl who is full of love of life, and to see her again, to see her smiling is really remarkable. Her family is incredible. They are, they've been through so much and yet they have everything that they need emotionally in order to be there for this child and they are surrounded by the love and support of their community and we're relieved to see her home. It gives us hope to see that this framework is working, that the United States and Qatar are managing to bring Israel um, and Hamas to some kind of deal. And we really hope to continue seeing people coming home to their loved ones where they belong. And to that point, Liz, that is why you and Noah are wearing those patches on, on, your, on your shirts, right? With the number of days. Uh, and you change them every day. You continue to wear them even though Abigail is home. Well, yes, I mean, 52 represents now the amount of days that hostages have been somewhere in the dark, somewhere in Gaza. And in many cases, we don't know where all of these hostages are. Yeah. And it's been made clear that they don't even know where a nine-month-old child is right now. And so we wear this because we have American hostages, Israeli hostages. And until they come home every day, we want people to understand these are real lives that have been taken, abducted. And we want to make sure people understand that just the severity of this and that it isn't it's hard. We can lose track of time, but this is 52 days that these people have not been with their loved ones. We don't know anything about them. The Red Cross hasn't been able to visit with them. And in the same breath, I will say that I know that President Biden and his team and the government and, as Noah mentioned, the Qataris, everybody is working to release them. But until that happens, every day we need to understand what this really means. No, what's the relationship like between... Uh, family members uh, uh, of those who've been taken hostage, both that have been released and that are still being held. You guys have been so critical to keeping this front and center, to keeping the spotlight on these issues as the diplomatic talks have gone forward. Do you, do you have contact with other family members? Do you coordinate? Do you talk about how this is all going to work to keep pressure on? 
I hope that none of you will ever know what we have gone through, what these families are going through, but we know and th these other family members know and that communication and support has been, I think, one of the only things, main things keeping us going in this absolutely unbearable and excruciating reality. And um, we hope that no one will ever have to join this club. Yeah, I certainly understand that. And it's, it's working. Uh, nobody would want to be a part of that or have to go through what you have all gone through. But it is having an effect. We're seeing the effect in those photos uh, with Abigail and so many others, so many more still obviously need to come home. Liz and Noah Natale, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. We do have some sad breaking news just into CNN to report Israel this morning confirming the death of a man who was listed as hostage. The IDF says that Ravid Katz was taken during the terror attack on October 7th. It is unclear if he died in Gaza or if he was killed in Israel. His body was, though, brought over the border. He was from kibbutz near Oz. His sister is Daron Katz Asher. She and her two young children, Raz, five years old, and Aviv, just two years old, you see them there, they were among the hostages freed on Friday. Well, C.J. Rice has been in prison for more than a decade. Now he's one step closer to freedom. CNN's Jake Tapper joins us about this critical development in his case. And happening right now in India, a rescue mission to save 41 workers trapped in a tunnel for more than two weeks. Some should be out at any moment. This morning, a Philadelphia man is one step closer to freedom. Yesterday, C.J. Rice was granted a petition for writ of habeas corpus by uh, a Pennsylvania judge. As a teenager, Rice was sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison for a 2011 shooting. The judge found that Rice's trial attorney rendered ineffective assistance and ordered that Pennsylvania decide whether to retry him or free him within 180 days. It was a cover story in The Atlantic last year that started the ball rolling on a legal effort to get Rice released and really to bring justice. The title of that report, This Is Not Justice, a Philadelphia Teenager and the Empty Promise of the Sixth Amendment. And the reporter who wrote that incredibly compelling and important piece learned about CJ's ordeal after Rice's pediatrician said he didn't think CJ could have done this crime because he himself was recovering from a shooting at that time. And that reporter, our very own Jake Tapper, the pediatrician, his father, Dr. Theodore Tapper, watched part of Jake's original CNN report on Rice. He had staples in his abdomen over a approximately an eight or nine inch surgical incision from his breastbone straight down as far as you could go. There was no way this young man five days after I saw him was running anywhere, let alone walking fast. Joining us now is CNN anchor Jake Tapper. Wow, Jake, what a what a culmination of a lot of work. Um, so the fact that this judge, Jake, granted this petition for a writ of habeas corpus, what does it mean now? Well, it means his conviction um, was overturned. Uh, and now uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has 180 days to decide uh, whether they are going to set CJ free or whether they are going to retry his case. And the Commonwealth will be represented by the District Attorney of Philadelphia. And a division in the District Attorney's office has already ruled uh, that CJ's, uh, was, CJ was denied uh, Sixth Amendment rights and was not given 
uh, a competent attorney. Um, so I expect, I do not know this for a fact, but I expect that ultimately the district attorney of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, will free CJ. Again, mm -hmm. I do not know that for a fact, but mm -hmm. since his office has already ruled that CJ did not have adequate representation, and since CJ has already done 12 years in prison for a crime that I do not believe he could have committed, a crime that nobody was seriously injured in, much less uh, killed, um, I think that ultimately CJ will be a free man, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. Jake, can you take people back to your piece, both how you kind of got <clears throat> into it, but also it, it was so damning and uh, in, in how it was written and based on your reporting, how it actually came to be? Okay, so my dad is a uh, pediatrician. He's retired now. Um, and he uh, worked in a, in a poorer section of Philadelphia, a lower income section. And CJ was his patient. Um, and CJ was shot uh, in... Um, 2011, and a, a few weeks after he was shot, CJ was accused of participating in a shooting, but my dad said he couldn't have done that shooting. He couldn't have walked up to this family and then run away because he could barely walk. Um, but, uh, you know, the justice system, quote unquote, justice system in, in this country is what it is. Uh, and based on a photo lineup uh, of very uh, questionable circumstances, uh, one witness said that CJ did the shooting. And based on that one witness, uh, CJ was uh, convicted and sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison, even though his co-defendant was completely acquitted. And um, my dad asked me to take a look at this after years and years of trying to get CJ, uh, CJ's conviction overturned based on the fact that he didn't think that it was fair and that he didn't think his medical testimony was adequately uh, respected during the trial, uh, and that he didn't think CJ's lawyer was very good, mm -hmm. um, a woman who has since passed away. I took a look at it uh, and realized that he had actually uh, uh, inadequate representation. Uh, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution guarantees you counsel, uh, and he really did not have adequate counsel. And so I went to my friend Jeff Goldberg, who's the editor of The Atlantic, and I said, I would like to write about this. Uh, and Jeff, uh, to his great credit, um, assigned me uh, another uh, researcher reporter to help me write the story. And we wrote this piece uh, and Jeff put it on the cover of The Atlantic, October 2022. Um, and hopefully that got a conversation going. In the meantime, my dad, I think, although he won't confirm it, uh, hired an attorney named Carl Schwartz and he filed this habeas petition based on the same argument that CJ did not have adequate representation. And the district attorney's office in September agreed, and then one judge in October agreed, and then the second judge yesterday also agreed. So CJ's conviction has been overturned, and now we're just waiting for the system to move forward and let CJ out for this great injustice. And I would just like to, I know I'm rambling, but I would just like to point out, we know that jails, prisons are full of kids like this, full of lower income, especially people of color, and that CJ just happened to have been lucky to have had a pediatrician with a, with a son who's a journalist. Um, and it sucks. This is the system we have. Yeah, well, that's why you put air quotes around justice, right? Jake, how many other CJs are out there? Uh, this is everything, Jake. Thousands. Thousands, that's exactly right. Um, thank you, Jake, for all you did on this. We'll track it. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. 
President Biden and the First Lady heading to Georgia at any moment to honor the late Rosalind Carter. Some others who plan to be there, well, they may surprise you. We're going to take you to Atlanta next. At any moment, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will depart for Atlanta to attend the memorial service of former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Jimmy Carter will also be there, as well as former President Clinton and every living former First Lady, Laura Bush, Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, and Melania Trump. CNN's Eva McKen is live at the Glen Memorial Church in Atlanta. Eva, what do we know about the plans for today? Yeah, Phil and Poppy, in just a few hours, the motorcade will arrive here from the a Carter Center to the Glen Memorial Church. We're on Emory University's campus. And then this momentous tribute, this memorial service will begin. You mentioned a number of esteemed uh, figures, but we'll also hear from the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, uh, former um, country music stars, Trisha Yearwood, Garth Brooks. Uh, we'll hear songs like Morning Has Broken, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. If you're familiar with the church tradition, you'll know how powerful uh, those songs are and how important uh, they were to the former first lady. And I think all of this really illustrates that uh, the former first lady was a legendary figure in her own right, separate and apart uh, from her, uh, her husband, the uh, former president, Jimmy Carter. Here's how members of her family are thinking about this moment. We know how much we loved her. Uh, and it's just so heartwarming to, to see how the nation loves her. I want people to remember my Aunt Rosalind as someone who stood up for what she believed in. Uh, you know, she believed in equal rights for women. She believed in caregiving. A true testament to their love story that the former president, 99 years old, that he will be here to honor his wife. Poppy, yes. Phil. Certainly quite a day ahead. And we will have, Eva, thank you very much, full live coverage of that. It begins at noon Eastern right here on CNN. Thank you so much for starting your day with us. We'll see you back here tomorrow. CNN New Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.